Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. I'm Mary Kilpatrick. And I'm Andrew Tobias. And as always, thanks for listening. Special thanks goes out to the Cleveland Public Library for providing us with the real estate and the equipment to make this podcast possible. We really appreciate working with them. As always, if you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and rate and review us on your favorite podcasting service. We're on Google Play, TuneIn, iTunes, just about anything you can find out there. And if you have any suggestions for us or you want to request a guest, go ahead and send that to my email. That's at srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that's srichardson at cleveland.com. This week on Ohio Matters, we had Democratic gubernatorial nominee Richard Cordray. Mary, I just want to ask you real quick, and you think of Richard Cordray as a guest. What do you what do you think of? A robot? That's probably uh, what a lot of people are thinking. It was actually a pretty surprising interview that Andrew and I did with him, though. It was very, uh, he, he's just an interesting dude. He's got a wealth of knowledge and kind of an interesting biography. Yeah, and talking to him, you can, uh, the thing that everybody hears about him is that he's super smart, and so that definitely comes through when you have an extended conversation with him. I guess once you sort of just uh, have an opportunity to also talk to him about his experiences and just kind of get him talking about a variety of topics, he's got like a really dry sense of humor. He's done some weird stuff. He's had a very diverse kind of full life, and so we uh, honestly... We had a conversation. We were sort of setting up Ohio Matters in general, like, who do we want to have on? And it wasn't a clinch that we were going to have Cordray on, despite his prominence in Ohio politically and him obviously being the Democratic gubernatorial nominee. Uh, we asked ourselves, like, do we want to talk to Rich Cordray for an hour? And, you know, I mean, uh, not to undersell it or anything like that, but I think that after we did it, we actually had a really good time. And I think that uh, he's kind of uh, a better listen than you might expect. And you'll probably notice the questioning in this is going to be a little bit different. We, we, we thought we could go with kind of the biographical stuff, but we wanted to talk to him about a few kind of just more interesting issues surrounding him. So we'll talk to him about, of course, his biography, but we'll also pick his brain about some stuff. And I think we'll, uh, we'll have a special surprise for everyone at the end. So with that, let's go ahead and listen to the interview we did with Richard Cordray. Rich, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing today? Good. All right. We want to hop right into it. We know you're pressed for time. So everyone knows you as a politician, with probably the most notable thing about your background being that you're a five-time Jeopardy! champion. But going through some of your biography, there's quite a bit there. Uh, in fact, your quiz show beginnings go back to high school when you won In the Know, if I'm not mistaken, right? That is correct. And you worked at uh, McDonald's for minimum wage? I did. So it seems like a pretty firm middle-class background. I'm curious, do you, did you ever see yourself when you were you know, working minimum wage at McDonald's, one day running for governor? When I was working minimum wage at McDonald's for the princely sum of $2.30 an hour, my biggest problem was just that the manager always wanted me to clean the parking lot whenever it was raining. So uh, I wasn't really uh, thinking about uh, what I was going to do down the road. But in high school, uh, I was interested in public affairs. I was a representative to Buckeye Boys State uh, between my junior and senior year, and that was a good experience. I met a, a guy named Phil Saunders from Bedford Heights up here uh, that... Uh, uh, we competed against each other at Buckeye Boys State. And I think I had a sense that I was interested in leadership in the community, whether that necessarily meant politics or not. I, I wouldn't have known at that time. What's your favorite sandwich at McDonald's? The Big Mac. Still? Still. You eat there pretty frequently? Or? I actually don't eat Big Macs very frequently, but it's still my favorite. <laughs> so your educational career is also pretty esteemed. We were looking through that. Uh, co-valedictorian of your high school class, summa cum laude from Michigan State, a Marshall Scholar and editor-in-chief of the University of Chicago Law Review. 
So you could have easily been a very high-priced attorney, you know, swimming in cash. Why politics? Well, that's a long story, uh, Seth. Uh, I think that uh, for myself, people have asked me that over the years. I think it probably goes back to my parents. Uh, They both worked in public service, uh, not at some sort of uh, glorious or headline-making level. They both worked with uh, children with developmental disabilities their whole careers. Uh, So they got up every day, went to work, made a difference for someone else, raised somebody else's quality of life, usually underappreciated, almost never with the amount of resources that they knew they needed to do their jobs as well as they could. Uh, But I thought that was a noble example, and I'm I'm not sure I thought about it a lot at the time, but I think I imbibed that example, and it's informed my view of public service and what it is and what it should be, uh, should be about others, not about yourself. You also played basketball during your time at Oxford, right? I did. And you won a British University's championship? Yes. Americans were, uh, we were like freaks. We could actually play, whereas the British weren't very good in that day and age. That was kind of what we were wondering. Do the British actually know how to play basketball? Well, we, I played in a semi-pro league as well, and in that league they had a rule, no more than two Americans per team. So, uh, yeah, we were at a premium. I had a lot of fun. We played uh, all over England, all over the British Isles, all over Europe. Uh, we even went and played in Egypt at one point against the Egyptian Olympic team. So that was interesting. It was in front of a military base full of soldiers with full arms. So you didn't want to give a hard foul. What position did you play? I was a forward. Small forward or a power? Uh, okay. Yeah. What pro player would you compare yourself to today? Oh, that's interesting. Um, that's interesting. Actually, as I've aged, I think I've, uh, I hate to sound critical, but because I'm not, I'm a fan of his. I've developed moves more like Kevin Love. I hang out around the three-point line or I go in and post up smaller guys. I'm not all that mobile, though. So is this the inspiration for some of your Cavs suites? Have you always been a basketball fan? I've always been a Cavs fan, going back to uh, Joe Tate uh, back in the old days, who used to be the uh, radio announcer for the Cavs. Uh, this is back in the uh, 70s when they were competing against the Bullets for the Eastern Conference uh, Championship a couple different years. Uh, then, of course, again, when they had Mark Price and Craig Elo and Larry Nance Sr. That's a generation ago, Sr. Uh, <laughs> and now again, uh, of course, all, all the long run under LeBron. I will say I was very unhappy with LeBron when he went off to Miami, but I got right back on the bandwagon when he got back to Cleveland. As I think everybody in this town probably <laughs> did, right? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, I was surprised how quickly the LeBron James jerseys reemerged from like cold storage or whatever. It was amazing. It was like a light switch. You know, he came back, and I suddenly thought that was that was a really good move, and I've forgiven. So in 1987, you won five games in a row on Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. Take us. How did you get there? So I had, uh, as you said, I'd done tw- quiz games in high school. And by the way, my son just did a quiz game in his high school, and he was better at it than I was in my day and age. But uh, a friend of mine had gone on Jeopardy and had done well and came back and told me that I should do the same. Uh, I couldn't find the time until after I graduated from law school, but then I went out to Los Angeles and tried out. You had to fly out and try out in those days. They didn't have the Internet uh, where you could do it online. And they called me back, uh, and I went out, and I won five games. I had a really tough game, my first game against a uh, police officer from South Philadelphia who was the spitting image of the Fonz, and he had just blown away the competition in the game before, but we had a very tight game, and I came in the uh, double jeopardy portion. I had a daily double question where I bet all my money, and if I had not gotten it, I would not have liked to ever mention the word jeopardy again. Uh, It was in the category geography, and they wanted you to name two of the three countries in the world whose name starts with the letter J. What was the hardest question 
you ever got while you're on Jeopardy? All the ones I missed. You don't have one that comes to mind, like, oh, I should have gotten that, but it was just well, too hard at the time. if I should have got it, then it obviously wasn't that hard. <laughs> the ones that I knew I never had a chance to get were the hard ones. And that was in the day when you had the five-day limit. You couldn't go any more than five days, correct? We had, so... we had term limits. That's what I called it. <laughs> My first experience with term limits. Do, yeah. you, do you ever feel like in an alternate universe you could be Ken Jennings? I think all of us felt we could be Ken Jennings, but we all would have been wrong. He was, he was a, a different uh, level player. Could you have beat Watson? Uh, it depends on how fast they make Watson. That's the hidden key there. But I was called back to Jeopardy in 2014. They had a special tournament for 45 players from the first 30 years of the show, and I was one of those. Uh, and I finished second in my game, and I'm still kicking myself about that. I actually looked up your final Jeopardy question from that game, and that I, was... I, I got that one. And there was one I never would have gotten. It was with which symbol on the periodic table comes in alphabetical order uh, that, that, that d- doesn't match the name. It's Yes. It yeah, was kind of a gold, and I feel like I was pretty close. So. That was... I, I thought of that, and then I came up with AG for silver rather than AU for gold, which was a little better. So, yeah. Uh, but I got it, and that t- took the lead, but then the other guy got it and won the game. So I was aggravated. So what did you spend the money on? Uh, back when? Well, first thing you do is you have to pay taxes because the California Franchise Tax Board is right there because that's money earned in California. So they, with all the game shows, they're militant about getting their money and getting you signed up before you leave the set. Uh, so that was part of it. Uh, I also paid back my dad for some money I'd borrowed to go to law school, and then I bought a uh, used car. So uh, I also, though, paid for a trip that a friend of mine and I took out to California he had been uh, on my high school in the no team, and he was very good at movies. And he had studied with me on movies. And I had a Final Jeopardy uh, answer that I got. Uh, the category was the Oscars just because of the studying he and I had done. They wanted to know which Billy Wilder picture was the last black and white film to win the Oscar for Best Picture. And I happened to know uh, because of our study that it was the apartment. So. I told him we would we'd go on a trip back to where he grew up in Northern California. We had a lot of fun. Far did that. You won forty grand, right? Forty thousand three hundred and three. Who's counting? Yeah. <laughs> How far did that go back in the day? We were kind of wondering that ourselves. Uh, well, it was more money than I made as a law clerk for the Supreme Court during that year. So, uh, you know, seemed like a lot of money at the time, and it brought me. She would deny this, but it brought me to the attention of my uh, now wife, uh, who. Uh, we ended up uh, marrying several years later, so uh, it did did wonders for me. Now, I will say, at the time on Jeopardy, uh, I got some marriage proposals through the mail, uh, not, none of which were um, worth my attention. But um, uh, <laughs> anyway, the other amusing thing was I was in the Tournament of Champions later that year, uh, and in fact, uh, I ended up playing against a young guy from Shaker Heights who had won the teen tournament, I think, uh, named Michael Galvin, uh, and uh, I won that game, and then I finished second in the semifinal game, and when you don't win on Jeopardy, you don't get to keep the money. You get these sort of leftover prizes instead. The consolation. So for like the next few weeks, I was receiving stuff through the mail, like uh, big packages of rice aroni <laughs> and a bunch of Lee press-on nails. These are the ones I remember, <laughs> uh, uh, and I ended up getting a big vacuum cleaner that was... $800 vacuum cleaner. I just had a tiny apartment at the time, uh, and it was like a tractor. It had a big light on it and everything. It was much more powerful than I needed. Were just from fans that were sending these? Or? No, no. That uh, When you don't win on Jeopardy, you get the oh, consolation like the prizes, okay. and they're never anything you really want to have. So. 
Trebek's getting up there in age. Who do you think should replace him? I don't know. He's been he's been pretty fabulous, and he's had a lot to do with the success of that show. I mean, for me, it was it was thirty years ago, but the show has remained popular ever since. So it's almost a cultural thing now. You know, everybody knows Jeopardy. So uh, that's like a credential at a school that's getting better and better over the years. That's how it was for me. Uh, I don't know who can replace him, and I, I'll bet that the show will decline a bit once he's not there. So you mentioned your time as a clerk, and you started off your career working for Robert Bork, correct? I was a law clerk for the Justice Department and then for Judge Bork, yes. So many point to Bork's nomination to the Supreme Court as kind of the point at which the court, Supreme Court sort of became politicized. Uh, what was it like working for a guy who ended up being such a divisive figure? So I think that was at the point at which the court became uh, politicized. Uh, Judge Bork was a conservative uh, on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. He had been a Chicago law professor. I had gone to the University of Chicago, so professors recommended me to him. Uh, he was conservative, more conservative than I am, and yet uh, he was he was a reasonable man, and we had a case, I remember that year, involving uh, class action sex discrimination at the State Department, and he agreed with a couple of liberal judges on the court that that needed to be uh, addressed in the way that it was uh, addressed. I do think that after his confirmation hearing in which he was rejected uh, and there was so much politicization of that, that that embittered him in some ways, and he became uh, more uh, militantly conservative after that. But uh, I thought he was... uh, a, he look. He was a first-class judge uh, and a first-class legal mind, uh, but um, uh, you know he was he was rejected in that process. Did uh, his conservative philosophy did it, did it have any effect on the way that you view the law at all, or his originalist philosophy have any effect on the way you view the law? Well, I have different views in a number of respects. Uh, on the Court of Appeals, there wasn't so much constitutional law; it was mostly administrative law, uh, but. Um, I respect uh, that uh, school of thinking, uh, but it is not one that I actually share. Do you get Capital Letter? It's the must-have daily read for statehouse happenings. Five mornings a week, Cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct, timely information. It's perfect for people, businesses, and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers, the governor, and all of state government. From breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda, if you're not getting capital letter, you're missing out. For more information, visit cleveland.com slash capital letter. That's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. Cordary's personality can come across as kind of bland, but he's got kind of a fun Twitter personality, right? Yeah, it's sort of hard to pin down. Like, it's difficult to really explain Rich Cordray's Twitter unless you're sort of a regular consumer of it. I know um, as we were researching this, Seth actually had like a list of weird Rich Cordray tweets, and it was basically like everything he tweeted during a three-week period when he first started. I get the sense he's maybe toned it down a little bit since then. I think a really big thing uh, that makes his Twitter unique is that Twitter recently switched to 280 characters, and he uses every one of those characters every single time. And it just has this kind of weird sort of departure from sort of the natural rhythm of Twitter. But then also, like, it's this sort of mix of uh, weird observations, random stories. Uh, He has a very 
unusual vocabulary even like the word choices that he picks are a mix of kind of obscure and actually frankly stuff that i've never even heard before he is has firmly planted himself in weird twitter which is you know perfectly fine when you look at his compared to other politicians twitters i actually find it to be one of the more refreshing personally uh so many politician twitters are just them kind of saying hey look at us we're marching in this parade or if you support retweet or something like that and with with his you get you know you're going to talk about watersheds and you're going to talk about the state shape and you're going to talk about what was the what was the word friendly bite no the flag um burgies burgies, burgies. Yes. You, you will learn what a burgie you is you know what a burgie is Mary? isn't that something in golf that's a bogey okay but no <laughs> um we didn't know what it was until we actually talked with richard cordray as well so so in this segment you're going to hear about his twitter and uh with that let's go ahead and get to the interview so we have a fun section uh, where we're going to read some of your tweets that you've made in the past. How could it be more fun than Jeopardy? So, anyway, <laughs> right, not yeah. to say that. Oh, you're going to read some of my tweets. Thing okay, fun, that's right? fine. Uh, so <laughs> All we're, right. We're going to ask you to explain them for us, just kind of <laughs> one by one, if that's okay. <laughs> that's uh, okay. Might need the uh, psychoanalyst here, but okay, sure. <laughs> so engaging the media in Cleveland to talk to the people directly, very different, though, from what I'm doing here in these tweets. Interesting how the currents of information flow through our society. Should we have in mind, quote, unquote, media watersheds? And this was from December 7th, 2017. Okay. What do you want to know? One of the central things that you're saying there is that you're communicating with people directly. Uh, so I guess what is it about watersheds and what is it about Twitter that allows you, you know, so that, that, you like that, a medium? So that tweet followed us uh, several weeks of tweets in which I had had a number of tweets about the watersheds of Ohio. So the Maumee River watershed going into western Lake Erie. Uh, and the Cuyahoga River watershed up here in northeastern Ohio, and the Miami watershed in western Ohio going down to the Ohio River, and the Scioto in the middle, and Muskingum on the right. So I had talked a lot about uh, watersheds, and then it occurred to me that information kind of trickles out through our society in a bit of a flow as well, uh, and could be compared to like uh, watersheds. How does information get to people? I think it's kind of an interesting motif. I have not developed it. And the Twitter format of 280 characters doesn't really lend itself to giving some sort of broader essay analytical treatment of things. But uh, it is, you know, it is interesting. You know, I talk directly to people in person and in groups and try to communicate directly to people on Twitter. Uh, Then I communicate to people through you guys. This podcast is more direct. But if instead Seth were interviewing me, he would then write the story. So he would be the one communicating, but it would be communicating something about me and maybe some of it would carry uh Seth's pretty accurate so it would probably carry a lot of what I Only had to say accurate. in the interview so uh more than some <laughs> uh, so any and you know th- th- the interesting thing for somebody uh, running for office is you're trying to communicate to all the voters and how the information seeps out and how it flows out and whether it gets distorted or whether it gets certain things get prioritized and others don't whether people hear certain things about you and others not it's a really fascinating thing when you start to think about it, and it's a challenging thing for a for a uh, political figure who would like people to. I'd, I'd like people to really understand me through and through, and I think they would like me uh, and want me to be their governor. Uh, how I can communicate that information to them in a way that convinces them and persuades them and helps them see a bigger picture about me is an interesting enterprise. We used to visit our grandma in Dresden. She lived right next to the railroad tracks, and we put pennies on the rails after the. R- train went by they were flattened to a thin metal strip and very hot 
I don't know if this was dangerous. We were just kids passing the time. This, uh, December twenty third. Uh, December twenty third. I think that one speaks for itself, doesn't it? Do you remember what prompted you to share that? Uh, do I remember what prompted me to share that? No, I don't. Something uh, triggered in my mind uh, that recollection of my grandmother. I don't know. That was a couple days before Christmas, so I was with my family and our kids. Uh, maybe we had done something that day that reminded me of that. Uh, I can't dredge that one up for you. Ohio has a unique and pleasing shape, I have always thought. Kind of like a pentagon or home plate with straight sides, a meandering river boundary below, and partly straight top with a friendly bite mark out of it on the northeast side from Lake Erie, which was from uh, January 9 of this year. My uh, daughter particularly liked the friendly bite mark out of northeast Ohio for Lake Erie. Uh, But uh, yeah, I was just describing the shape of the state. That one got a huge response because Nate Silver of 538 decided to retweet it. And he said he instead thought that the most pleasing state shape was Kentucky because he said it's shaped, if you look at it, like a piece of fried chicken, which it actually kind of is when you look at it. And, of course, that fits with uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken, right? So he retweeted that, and it got some other people talking about things, and they came back to me later and wanted me to do more state shapes, and I I think I did a little bit more on that, but that was about as much as I had to say. I'm mostly familiar with Ohio. So what uh, what inspired you to share that? Uh, I just uh, was uh, interested in uh, talking about this. Look, I, I like Ohio, and this is my home, and I could have, as you said, gone off and done a lot of things, but I've made my home here and, and been part of the state, and I'm just fascinated by all things about it. Uh, uh, whether it's safe shape of the state, I did another one later on the state flag. Maybe that's in your group. We have that uh, one group. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so I, I just think there's a lot of neat things about Ohio, uh, fun things, and I like people to focus on uh, a lot of the things I think are interesting and beautiful and, and marvelous about the state of Ohio, and I'm kind of a kind of a Ohio patriot, if you will. So this is the last one that we're going to make you do. Um, Ohio has never feared to step out and be innovative. 49 states have a flag shaped in a two-by-three rectangle, yawn, parenthetical, and people say, I'm boring. Ohio, alone in the world, has a flag sometimes called a swallowtail or a bird's mouth, but properly known as a burgee. Is that how you pronounce that word? Burgee. Burgee. Mm-hmm. Um, so were you just like looking at Ohio's flag and were you struck by that or... What's, uh... No, I'd been waiting to do that one for a long time, uh, <laughs> and I just decided this was is this a day or two after the primary? Uh, yeah, that was May 12th. Sorry. Yeah, a couple of days after the primary, so I felt uh, it was okay for me to step out. And, and you know, a lot of people have been uh, reacting in different ways to my Twitter feed. Some people want me to only do political content and talk about public policy issues, and that's most of what I do, as you've probably seen. Uh, at the same time, I think it's good to show a little bit of your personality and and have a bit of a sense of humor. Uh, mine might be a little different from other people's, uh, but uh, around that time, I thought I would hold that one until after the primary, and that would be a bit of a celebration that I could let my hair down and do a tweet on the shape of our flag, which is, as I said, unique and bold and adventurous and is, to me, uh, kind of symbolic of how we are in Ohio. Yeah, I've always thought of it as like a pennant. I don't know if that's different technically than a, a pennant's more more of an actual triangle. Uh, it's more of a double pennant, but not even a double pennant, uh, which is what Nepal, I think, has. But uh, it's it's got its own uh, interesting sort of sawtooth shape. So that tweet references people feeling like you're boring. Do you, do you think that you're boring, or why do you think people think that? Uh, I don't know why people think that. I don't think I'm at all boring, and my children don't think I'm boring. I don't think Wall Street thought I was boring either when I went after them. But, uh, uh, you know, 
I'm low-key at times uh, and really learning uh, as a uh, political figure to give more, uh, show more of myself and be less buttoned down, which I was when I was a lawyer and I was when I was a federal regulator. So I'm having to grow and learn and trying to do that. What kind of feedback do you get about your from your tweets? Obviously, there are people who re- respond to. I don't know if you read every single one, but I know people probably have mentioned it to you as well. Oh, I've learned many years ago to ignore most of the commentators because they all have their own axe to grind. Uh, but I feel like uh, it's important for me in my own voice to comment on things that are on my mind, so people can get a sense of me. Uh, I comment a lot on public issues, but I also comment on things that are just interesting to me. Uh, and there's plenty of those throughout the course of a day. So can you walk us through the process in which you conceive of an idea and then you actually, what between that and actually appearing onto Twitter and on your account? Yes, I conceive of an idea. I decide whether I think it's worth talking about. I try to think about whether I think I can actually address it in 280 characters, which is a challenge. By the way, the one comment that was made about me that struck me as absolutely right was somebody said, we now see why Cordray waited so long to get in the race because he needed to wait until they changed 140 characters to 280 characters because he never could have coped with the 140 characters, and they were dead right about that. So uh, anyway, I think about things. Uh, uh, I'd make a judgment whether I think they might be interesting to share or what I have to say about them, and if so, we pop them out there. Sometimes my people fight me on the things that I want to say, but... I always win. Do you have like a committee then of, I mean, not officially like a Twitter committee, but is, is there a process for you like maybe bounce an idea off of somebody before you do it? We have people who just look at them to say if they see if they see some angle on it that maybe I missed that would be problematic. But no, I write them and we put them out. Are you going to continue to tweet if you end up winning and become governor? Most definitely. Although I will tell you one thing that I do insist on doing is I try to think before I tweet. Is there any tweet that you haven't gotten to send out that you wish you would have sent out? No. You know, Donald Trump is often talked about for his Twitter, and I, I mean, you guys you guys go about it a very different way. You know, his Twitter is remarkably different than yours. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, you're kind of using it for the same reason. I mean, do you, do you think that you and him, I, I hate to make you speak for him or anything like that, but do you see kind of the value, the same value that he used in 2016 just as a medium in general? I think that when you can find a medium where you can actually talk directly to people, they can get a better sense of who you are. You're unfiltered. Now, if you're Donald Trump, he had an extraordinary advantage. He already had universal name recognition and a huge following from The Apprentice television show uh, and his his books and his branding across the country. Uh, I don't have that. I have a growing following of people who are paying attention. Uh, And if they do pay attention, they will get to see more of me and they'll have a sense of what I'm like uh, and they can react to that. And I think a lot of people appreciate that and feel that it's sort of honest and straightforward. I think that is what people who have responded to Donald Trump's tweets uh, think. Uh, I do think it's important. I think you see a lot of people's personality and what they have to say. Uh, Sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad, uh, depending on how, how people really are. So tell me a little bit about Rich Cordray's political origins. He's been a figure in Ohio politics off and on for a long time now, right? Yeah, he ran really kind of with some mixed success back in the day. Uh, If you'd have looked at him through the lens of 2002, you could probably see where, 
you know, maybe this guy isn't going anywhere, moving on up. But then he had a couple of, you know, pretty big wins back-to-back and really moved up in the ladder. After, you know, he lost in 2010 to Mike DeWine, he kind of, I think, got even more big time when Obama appointed him to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, which has been thrown in a little bit of upheaval since he left. We did talk to him about uh, a lot of that as well. Yeah, he's somebody who's definitely basically kind of served at every level of government, um, you know, kind of like the final feather in his cap or whatever was his period at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which gave him a platform, I think, to um, it's kind of some of the things the Ohio Attorney General does. It's like, hey, I'm going after this medical company or I'm going after this shady fence builder or whatever. I mean, it's really like easy prepackaged stories just for news coverage and it's stuff that you can easily sell yourself on. He got to do that kind of at a national level, but obviously uh, he got a recess appointment. Um, it was very opposed by Republicans the entire time. So he's kind of like in the sort of political fray too. And this is not really something that we got into a whole lot, but it'll be interesting to see how much of that sort of like Washington dysfunction kind of follows him back and whether like he just continues to be uh, whether that the, the time that he had there is kind of painted like sort of through a partisan lens. but So we basically kind of went through it all just from start to finish. With that, let's listen to more of the interview with Richard Cordray. So you ran for office with some mixed success between 1990 and 2002 uh, when you became Franklin County Treasurer. But you did hold the spot of State Solicitor General in between there, a very important spot. You were arguing in front of the Supreme Court. I'm curious, why do you think you weren't able to string together some electoral success in that time frame? Well, during that time frame, I did run for the state legislature. I beat something that doesn't exist anymore, a 12-year Republican incumbent, and uh, had a very successful outcome in that race. I then ran a race for Congress after I was redistricted, so that was part of what happened to me was I was redistricted out of the legislature, so had my own experiences with uh, partisan gerrymandering, uh, which is not good for voters and not good for the state. Uh, I lost a ri- that race for Congress. I served as Solicitor General. I pursued my legal career for some time. Uh, I've argued seven cases over my time uh, in the United States Supreme Court, and I was appointed specially by the Clinton and then the Bush Justice Departments, so I had a, had a good run at a legal career. Uh, I ran for Attorney General in 1998, got the nomination, but was defeated, uh, and you know, I really had to take a step back at some point and decide if I wanted to stay in public service or not. You know, how, how deeply devoted was I to it? I decided to run for county treasurer. By the way, one of my inspirations there was Jim Rakakis, who was your Cuyahoga County Treasurer up here, and he was a truly innovative uh, and effective public official, and I thought, uh, if he's doing that, I, I can do that, and that's an interesting job to do. So I did that for four years, uh, was elected twice to that, uh, was elected state treasurer, and took a lot of those ideas to the state level. Uh, and then when we had the resignation of the attorney general, we had the special election in 2008, and I got elected attorney general, which kind of took me back to my roots because I had started in the attorney general's office and had been a, a lawyer for all those years. Uh, and I enjoyed that work and also enjoyed working with law enforcement across the state, uh, which uh, I think we were quite effective at with police and sheriffs. And a lot of them uh, support me today because of the work we did together. Do you see yourself as more of a lawyer or litigator or more of a politician? Well, a good friend of mine told me at the beginning of this race, he said, Rich, I don't want to see Rich the lawyer in this race. I want to see Rich the basketball player. And by that, I know he remembers that I'm fairly physically aggressive on the basketball court, uh, uh, sometimes clumsily. So he, he knew that I had fouled out of two different games when I used to play organized basketball with five charging fouls. So 
I felt like I had a path to the hoop and people should not be in my way and, and darn it, I was entitled to go there. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, a law- there's certain skills that a lawyer has and there's certain job that a lawyer does. It's very different from being uh, a governor and somebody who is the leader of the state and it's a much more political job where you have a lot of say over the direction of public policy. You don't have to be bounded by, uh, you know, having to figure out how you handle a legal case or, or something. You're just trying to, to find the right way forward for people. Uh, and so I've gotten to, to understand that it's a different kind of race, it's a different kind of job, and it calls on a different set of skills. We mentioned that, you know, from 90 to 2002, there was some mixed success there. But then you had a string of some pretty big victories. Like you said, 2002, you were, you know, elected to Franklin County Treasurer. 2006, you were elected State Treasurer. 2008, Attorney General. And, and then 2004, you, ele- re-elected Frank County Treasurer. So every yeah. two years I was running, yes. And then in 2010, of course, you ended up losing to your current opponent, Mike DeWine. What is it like, like, what, I'm trying to get inside your head, what is it like going from winning and winning and winning and then all of a sudden having that just kind of cut short? It's an interesting question, Seth. When I was um, blocked uh, during the confirmation process to the job at the Consumer Bureau in Washington, uh, I had to spend time with, or got to spend time with, a number of senators uh, as we were working through the confirmation process and sit down with them and, and make a case to them. And I always used to look at their backgrounds and if somebody had never lost an election, I always thought that was a different person than somebody who had lost an election or two along the way, because I think you learn a lot about yourself when you suffer adversity. Uh, and losing an election really is a tough thing because you work and work all year, and then you come up empty with nothing to show for it because you didn't win the office. Uh, but what I realized over the years is you actually learn a lot from that. You learn a lot about people. You learn a lot about yourself. And it's, it's the educate. I always called campaigning the education you can never get in school uh, because it gets you out of your patterns, forces you to see all of what's going on in society, uh, understand it better, uh, think about what kind of problems we're facing and how you can try to solve those problems. Uh, and that is a worthy endeavor. And ultimately, if you've got your eyes and ears open, it makes you a better public official when you do get a chance to hold office. If, if you do. Uh, looking back, what was the difference between the elections you lost versus the ones that you won? Votes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, early on, uh, I sometimes ran races that were tough races that maybe somebody with more experience would have not decided to take on. Uh, you know, I was young and brash and felt that I could do anything. Uh, I think over time, you start to think about measuring what is it, measure twice and cut once? You know, think harder about which races to get in and the case you can make for yourself. I think I began to have more success. The other thing is that part of it is, especially running statewide, you have to, you have to get known. And the first time I ran in 1998, it was very difficult to do that. And, and you know, for, for like Joe Schiavone this time, it's very difficult for him because you're introducing yourself to people all over the state, and it's very hard to make enough of an impression even though I think Joe made a very good impression across the state. It's just hard to get over that hurdle. They say in Ohio that you have to often lose once statewide before you can win. And part of that is just it's it's such a difficult state to get yourself known in eight different media markets that often have little to do with one another. What's news in Youngstown may not be news at all in Cincinnati, and yet you have to make an impression everywhere. And after I got a chance to um, uh, run and I won the state treasurer job by 600,000 votes and won the state attorney general job 
by 900,000 votes and got more votes than any Democrat non-presidential candidate has ever gotten in the state of Ohio. You know, at that point, I was I was an established figure. Uh, Mike DeWine is also an established figure, you know, two terms in the U.S. Senate, and he beat me by one point in 2010. But, uh, you know, so we ran basically even in what was a very tough year, uh, and it's going to be a tough race this year, and I think we will run close again. Uh, and uh, I think we have a lot of opportunities here to win this race, but it'll be a tough race, and we'll have to uh, be at our very best to win it. You mentioned the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau where you went. You were the first director for that. Do you think going to the CFPB kept your political career alive? I didn't really think of it that way. So uh, I had lost the race in 2010 and uh, was almost immediately recruited by Elizabeth Warren, who wanted me to come to the Bureau and build a strong enforcement arm. And I couldn't really wrap my mind around the opportunity because it was going to mean a long-distance commute. My family was in Ohio. Uh, That's where my roots and heart were. And my family was going to stay in Ohio, and she persuaded me to go back and forth pretty much every weekend, which I did for the next, I thought I would do it for a year or two. Then I got nominated to be the head of the agency, which was unexpected, and my family and I powwowed over that, and they'd gotten kind of used to me going back and forth. And we realized it was a great way to serve our country, and I could do on a national scale some of the things I'd done as attorney general here, standing up for people, fighting for people, making sure they got a fair shake. And it was an important job. And the president, President Obama, had told me that he saw it as a very important job. So I agreed uh, to do that and uh, didn't really think about it in terms of my political career. It was a chance to uh, really do an important job, looking out for people, giving them a voice, fixing problems for people, making sure people who were taken advantage of, that we rectified that and got people treated fairly and cleaned up the financial marketplace, which is what we did for the next number of years. And I didn't honestly know if I was ever going to run for political office again or not. And you know, you left early to run for governor. Uh, Since then, it's been kind of thrown into upheaval in this sort of crisis of leadership. And Mick Mulvaney, the current acting director, I believe is his title, or interim director, you know, he's made it pretty clear that he wants to kind of dismantle the agency from the inside out. Uh, What's it been like to kind of personally watch this happen uh, sort of from afar, really? Yeah, so so I disagree with some of what you said, but uh, it has been painful to see uh, the leadership, uh, which is, in my view, invalid leadership of the agency. He was not the rightful uh, person for the job, uh, and there's a legal case pending on that, and I think they may well yet find that that was, that was not the right uh, way to go about it. Uh, but they have taken different direction from the direction that I took as a director. I was aggressive for consumers, and people have criticized me for that, but we thought we had to rebalance the financial marketplace so that uh, companies understood that somebody was looking over their shoulder, enforcing the rules, and making them treat customers fairly, which is what we did. He takes a very different view and is not aggressive for consumers. If if anything, he cares more about the financial companies than he does about uh, each one of us, Uh, and I think it has shown in the work. Now, uh, I could have stayed a few more months. I had a few more months left on my term, uh, but... I was getting to the point where I could no longer be all that effective. I had finished one big task, which was the national payday lending rules, restricting payday lenders, which was something very important to me and I thought very important to the public in this country. Uh, I had very little time left to start anything new and do anything uh, major. So at that point, I looked at it and decided to come back here uh, and to run for governor of Ohio, which is obviously what I'm doing now.
you were also pretty famously a thorn in Trump's side while you were there because you were really doing what the Bureau kind of set out to do, which was sort of the antithesis of what Trump was wanting the agency to do. Uh, did you ever talk to Trump when you were there? Never had a conversation with Donald Trump. I actually was disappointed because I thought from what was said during the campaign that that administration would care more about consumer protection, care more about the forgotten Americans who often nobody listens to and and can't get their problems fixed. Uh, and I thought it would have been smart for them to uh, do some consumer protection and to stand on the side of people more than they have. Instead, they've been in the pockets of the financial companies. Uh, they've been they've sided with the special interests. I think that's a mistake. Uh, I think it's bad politics. I think it's bad government. Uh, but um, you know, I did stay there for almost a year, and many people called for him to fire me on a daily basis. Uh, I let them know that if they did, I would sue them. Uh, and I didn't know how that would come out, but they would have a fight on their hands, and they never wanted to take that on. And I told them I would be doing things. I wasn't going to stay there and do nothing. I would keep doing things the way I thought they should be done. Uh, I would let them know what I was doing before I did it, but uh, and they wouldn't like some of it, but that's the way it would be. And the payday lending rule in particular is one that uh, they, didn't, they didn't like. Uh, again, I think they're wrong on the issue. But we adopted that rule. It is law of the land now. The Congress had a chance to overturn it and didn't have the stomach to do it. So they may try to kill it in other ways, but uh, it is law of the land, and I'm proud of the work we did on that. There was some discussion here that I guess people were were assessing that if you were to have been fired, maybe you would be a political martyr and that might actually be a good story to run on. Was, was in any way, were you considering, I guess, that as a possibility, that you're staying around and possibly potentially putting yourself in position to be fired? That wasn't going to be my choice. Uh, I, I didn't decide whether I got fired or not. Uh, that was up to the administration. I did hear again and again that Ohio Republicans were counseling them not to fire me because they didn't want to make me a martyr and, and uh, uh, make me a, a larger public figure. Uh, you know How that played into their calculations, I don't know. But uh, I was simply trying to stay and do my job and protect uh, my agency and, and help condition people to the fact that there was going to be a transition coming. It was important to hunker down and keep doing the work and remain dedicated to the work. And for the most part, people have been uh, very loyal to that, and they've continued doing the work unless people actually stop them from doing it. I want to talk about your current race really quickly. Uh, you won pretty big in the primary against Dennis Kucinich. Did you think you were going to win by 40 points? Well, it was 39. Um, 39 points. <laughs> uh, look, uh that was a tough primary, uh, and we had four candidates who were all pressing forward, setting out their ideas. Uh, we agreed on a lot of things. We disagreed on certain things, but uh, everybody was, was pushing hard around the state. I know that that process made me a better candidate. It made me sharper. It, it really pushed me to develop uh, our positions on things faster than we might have done. Uh, and go out to the voters and present our case. Uh, and I think ultimately we were obviously very effective at doing that. But we also, I think, were respectful of one another and respectful of the voters because we gave people a choice and we had debates and we had public forums and we answered all the questions and we uh, gave people a, a good sense of what we stood for. The Republican primary was a mess by those standards. It was, it was, there was a state party endorsement and they shut everybody out. Uh, they had no debates. It all ended up erupting into ugly television ads on the airwaves. 
that were all negative, uh, not a thing really about what anybody stood for, uh, and you would have thought it was all about uh, uh, some of the right-wing issues that that they were uh, campaigning on. And I think that hurt them. Uh, and I think that we helped ourselves with our primary because I think we were so clearly respecting the voters. And I think they demeaned and disrespected the voters on the Republican side. Yeah, and, you know, there was this whole kind of narrative that's, that kind of started out in the beginning. I think it sort of filtered out after a while that there was the the uh, liberal insurgent, I guess, if you want to call it that, against the sort of establishment or something like that. But, I mean, you've got the support of a lot of progressives like Elizabeth Warren, but you are conservative on a lot of issues as well, you know, more so than you might let on, particularly on guns, which kind of became an issue during the campaign. I'm curious, why haven't you supported some of the gun policies that the party and some of the other people in the party uh, say they want and have kind of gravitated towards, especially given the current climate? So I don't pay attention to the labels, Seth. I mean, people can put labels on us. I guess I would call myself a practical progressive. But what I try to do is I try to look at the issues and see what I understand from Ohioans are the needs and the things they think we need to address. And then I try to find practical solutions that will actually make a difference and improve things. And that's what I tried to do with the gun issue and with the energy issues and with the health care issue and with the jobs issues and with the education issues. And I think people respected that. I wasn't going to promise people to sun the moon and the stars and not have any way to deliver on it. Uh, I try hard to make promises that I can keep. And then I try hard to keep those promises when I'm in office. And I think people who've seen me over the years know that about me and respect that about me. And I'm going to run this campaign the same way. You know, a lot of debate centers on the AR-15 right now, um, which has been used in a lot of the mass shootings. Do you think the AR-15 and its variants should still remain legal for purchase? So what I have said is that I think we need to tighten the gun laws in some specific respects. Uh, I respect people's right to bear arms under the Second Amendment. Uh, Always have, always will, responsible gun owners. But there are some people who should not have guns, Uh, criminals, the mentally ill, domestic violence abusers. And we need a universal background check system to keep the guns out of their hands. I have not been for banning particular guns uh, in Ohio. I have been for banning things that take legal firearms and turn them into illegal automatic weapons, such as bump stocks and high-capacity magazine clips and anything else of that sort. Remember where we are in Ohio right now. We have a legislature that has not lifted a finger to respond to things like Parkland or Sandy Hook. We need to create some activity and create some motion and get some things done in this state. I think I can do that as governor, and I will fight for those things. I also think as governor the things I can do working with local law enforcement to reduce the violence and save lives across the state, such as uh, the violence every day that claims lives on our streets, uh, one and two people at a time, but it adds up inexorably to high numbers in our society intervening with gang violence, intervening with street violence, intervening on crimes committed with guns. And they have done that in some other cities around the country, and it's been effective. And those are the kinds of things that I think we can do here that will reduce the violence, save lives, and that's where I want us to go. Mark Dan was on this podcast a couple weeks ago and said that he felt pressured to bend to the will of the gun lobby uh, when he was in the AG's office. I'm curious, did you ever or do you now feel that way ever? I can't speak for uh, what Mark Dan thinks about uh, himself or or why he approached things the way he did. Uh, For myself, I respect the uh, constitutional rights of responsible gun owners throughout Ohio, and yet at the same time, 
people who misuse guns to harm others. Uh, we need to find ways to crack down on that kind of gun violence and save lives. And I will continue to dedicate myself to that uh, and think hard about that and listen to people, including this youngest generation, about what, what we need to do to improve uh, on that issue in Ohio. So I understand you guys played a game, right? This is some sort of bonus extra thing? Yes, anybody who's made it this far is going to get to have some fun because everybody knows that Richard Cordray is a five-time Jeopardy champion. He's been on, I believe, the Battle of the Decades as well. So we decided that we were going to come up with some trivia for him to answer, some Ohio trivia. And, um, you know, the questions were pretty hard, and he did pretty well. Yeah, <laughs> we were we were uh, pleased that we stumped him a couple times, but then I also kind of want to address head-on that uh, mistakes were made, and we've uh, dealt with our research department accordingly. Uh, Cordray actually ended up correcting one of the questions uh, that we uh, posed to him, and, you know, I guess that's... There are worse things in the world. He's a smart guy, but you know. Who is who is our research department? I, I haven't met them yet. It's Andrew and me. Oh, oh really? <laughs> I thought you guys were holding out. Yeah, I'll, I'll bite the bullet. Was, this is me on this one. Uh, but it, is, it it does seem almost peak Cordray to correct the questioner um, when we you know when we screwed up one of the questions. Yeah, it was really funny. Um, I don't know how much this will come through on the audio, but at the end of the interview, Cordray whipped out his phone, and I just assume he was like, you know, he's running for governor. He's got more important things to do than talk to us. But no, actually, he was getting the right answer, and then he's like, I knew it. And so I got, we got told. I think that there's a reason that he's been on Jeopardy several times, and we haven't. Yeah, I've taken the quiz, but, you know, I just haven't made it the, through the first cut yet. Me as well. With that, uh, let's go ahead and see how well Richard Cordray does in our Ohio Matters trivia. Before we let you go, we we all know that you're you know Jeopardy champion and all that. So we've come up with a kind of lightning round for you to answer some questions. And these are all in Jeopardy format. If you stump me, I'll be mad at you. All right. Well, let's find out if we did, okay? And these are in Jeopardy format, so please answer in the form of a question. These eight men were the Ohioans who served as president of the United States. So that would be uh, Grant, Hayes, Garfield, McKinley, Taft, Harding, Benjamin Harrison is sometimes counted, uh, and William Henry Harrison is sometimes counted, depending on where you go by where they were born and where they spent their adult lives. That is correct. These four Ohio presidents died in office. So that would be McKinley, who was assassinated, Harding, who died of natural causes, Garfield, who was assassinated, and William Henry Harrison, who apparently gave too long an inaugural address, a cautionary tale to all politicians, and caught the flu and pneumonia and then died uh, just a, a few weeks later. For bonus points, which is the only Ohio president to have served two full terms? That was Ulysses S. Grant. He actually then wanted to run for a third term after sitting out four years, but was denied the nomination in 1880, and Garfield got it instead. All right. If you're staying in history, I'm going to do all right, especially Ohio history. <laughs> we figured you'd be pretty you good You might sense these. a theme here as the questions <laughs> proceed. These Ohio presidents have appeared on U.S. currency. Hmm, well, let's see. Uh, Grant was on the, uh, what, $50 bill? Mm-hmm. Um, Neither Harrison, not Garfield. Uh, I don't think Taft. 
Definitely not Harding. Harding kind of discredited us with his teapot dome scandal. I think McKinley was on some currency at one point, although I don't know how much it circulated. Maybe like the $10,000 bill or something like that. It was the $500 bill. $500 bill? Okay. Probably worth 10000 today. <laughs> <laughs> she was the only woman to serve as governor of Ohio. That's uh, Nancy Hollister for 11 days, I think, when George Voinovich took the Senate seat a little early. He was Ohio's longest-serving governor. I'm pretty sure that was Jim Rhodes, who served four terms. You're supposed to serve two terms, and yet the Ohio Supreme Court interpreted that as two consecutive terms. So he sat out and then came back and served two more terms. He was the most recent Ohio Attorney General to be elected as governor of Ohio. It's been a long time. It's interesting because this year there will be one of us, likely, uh, who will be elected. Um, I think it was probably C. William O'Neill. It was actually John Bricker um, for our listeners. Uh, he was governor of Ohio from 1939 to 1945 and uh, subsequently served as U.S. Senator and founded Bricker and Eckler, the, the law firm. Was C. William O'Neill never attorney general? Um, we might want to go back and look at that one. Our, our extremely comprehensive research. We don't have the <laughs> answer to that one prepared, but okay. perhaps we'll we flag will, that. We will correct ourselves in, in the banner if that is the correct. answer. Okay, well, we'll look that one up. <laughs> okay. These three cities all have been capitals of Ohio. Uh, Chillicothe, Zanesville, and Columbus. Correct. This is the party of the last Ohio governor who is not a Democrat or a Republican. Not a Democrat or a Republican. I'm just guessing, but I guess it would have to be a Whig then. It was actually the Union Party. Uh, John Bruff was a war Democrat before the he reached the consensus unionist tag with the, the Republicans in Ohio. And uh, as a bonus point, do you know which newspaper John Bruff owned? I do not, but since you're asking, I'm going to guess it was a Cleveland newspaper. It's actually the Cincinnati Advertiser, which was subsequently renamed the Cincinnati Inquirer. <laughs> All right, we've gotten into the difficult areas now. <laughs> Keep going. This is the last one. Ohio's boundaries and constitution were approved by Thomas Jefferson in 1803, but it wasn't officially granted statehood until this president retroactively admitted the state into the Union. That's interesting. I think you got me there. I knew we were a state starting in 1803, 17th state in the nation. Um, if you're asking me to guess this, I will guess uh, Monroe. Dwight Eisenhower. Really? Really, All yeah. the way to the 20th century. There was huh? apparently a dispute over uh, the days, and they missed some dates and all that, and it was just kind of accepted that Ohio was a state until... Dwight Eisenhower signed a proclamation when he was president, kind of backdating it to the 1803 date. We'll include it in the show notes about the Ohio History Connection article about this, kind of enumerating it further. All right. Outstanding. Now I'm looking up C. William O'Neill. <laughs> I, I am correct. He was attorney general from 1951 to 57 and then governor from 57 to 59. Let the record show. <laughs> that, that's an Andrew question. I Although you guys, uh, you guys got me on the ones after that. So <laughs> yeah. those ones were hard. I never would have gotten the other ones. So, so let the record show that C. William O'Neill. That C. Yeah. William O'Neill was actually governor. So, all right. Well, Rich, thank you so much for joining us. We really do appreciate it. Thank you. 